listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew 20, we're going to continue our series through the gospel according to Matthew. And as you are turning there, let me tell you about a few things we'd like for you to be aware of. Firstly, this past Thursday, we had a team of folks from our church go to Rwanda from Savannah. I think we have a picture of them here. They're headed out to partner with one of our global partners in Kigali, Rwanda. As you can see there, uh, Pastor Bill's a part of that team as well. Um, I was going to go, but I, I would have brought the average height of the team up too much or something, so they said I couldn't go. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, honestly, though, they're going um, to to partner uh, with one of our global partners. And while they're there, they're gonna be doing some teaching and some training in the community um, uh, with church leaders and specifically with some church planners. So what an incredible opportunity. We just wanted to make you aware of that. It's where our pastor is, where some of our people are. uh, And you can be praying for them. They should be back at the end of next week or around then. The second thing I want you to know is is the reason why hopefully you got this card. If you got this card, let me see it. Did you get one? All right, if you didn't, you can grab one on your way out. Uh, we don't do a lot of like call and response stuff out here, which is just shows whenever I ask you to do something like that. It's like very poor participation, so let's do better. Um, but uh, no, the reason why we got this card is because this is our sixth year that we have partnered with Wycliffe Bible Translations. That's an organization that exists to um, translate or to, to do the work of translating the scriptures into languages that it does not currently exist, right? So for the past five years, we've partnered with them um, to give the entirety of one of our Sunday offerings to uh, a translation project, and we're gonna do that again next Sunday. Next Sunday is what we call Go Sunday. It means a bunch of different things. Um, We're gonna celebrate baptisms. We're gonna hear from uh, one of our missionary partners. Had to hear his story a couple weeks ago. It's incredible. I can't wait for you to hear that. We're also gonna do this this Bible translation project with our offering, and I just wanted to, for some clarity's sake, this new Baca here on your card, this is not their actual, the name of this people group. It's a pseudonym, and the reason why is because for safety's sake and for some security concerns, we cannot mention who they actually are, the country they live in, or who the translators are. But what I want you to know in that, because we're asking you, or we're telling you rather, we're gonna give whatever money is given next Sunday to that end. I want you to know that even though we're not telling you who they are, we know who they are. And more importantly, God knows who they are. God knows who they are. And we, on the other side of the planet, we get to invest financially in seeing the inerrant and authoritative word of God translated into a language where it does not currently exist so the good news of the gospel can be believed and heard. And again, this is the sixth year that we have done this and every single project that we do is done in a place where traditional, traditional missionary work is not allowed, but because of Bible translation, um, uh, the gospel is going forward and new believers are hearing the gospel and finding life in Christ. And so again, this is next Sunday. The reason why I'm telling you that today is I'm asking you to commit to pray for this project in three ways. Firstly, I want you to pray for the translators themselves. Um, It's difficult work, right? Uh, For their safety, but also that God would sustain them as they do the work of translating this language. I'm gonna ask that you would pray for the translation itself, the word of God as it's translated into this language that people would hear it, that it would fall on fertile soil, that it would produce fruit for the kingdom of God. So you pray for the translators, for the word. And then also I wanna ask that you would pray for your own involvement in this project. 
at what capacity would God have you be involved? Again, we, we, if you've been a part of our church, you know, we don't ask a lot to, hey, give to this, if ever, right, seldom. And I'm doing that right now unashamedly because I can't think of anything more important than something like this to give our money to. We've already told you, we're gonna give the entirety of the offering next week to that end. So if you give the same as you normally do, we're giving it to them. If you decide to give more, we're giving it to them for the sake of God's word being translated into this language, of people's lives being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray in those three ways? Again, there's a lot happening in the next few weeks, but for now, God wants to speak to us through Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, if you can believe it, we're on week 45 of this sermon series. And some of you are like, I can believe it. Feels like 450, okay? Well, the good news there, um, if that's you, if you feel like we've been in this forever, is we only have one more after this week, one more week in Matthew for the rest of the year, right? Because next week's Go Sunday, we won't be in Matthew, then we'll be one week back in, and then it's Advent, and it'll take us through the end of the year, right? So we can do it one more time. Let's look at this together. We're gonna start in verse 17, and we're gonna finish the chapter, chapter 20, but we're gonna spend most of our time in the first three verses, and I wanna read those together now. Matthew 20, verse 17 says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So if you have been with us in this series, what we just read should sound familiar, right? This is the third time in just a handful of chapters that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says to them specifically, we're going to Jerusalem. Tells them in chapter 16, chapter 18, and then here in chapter 20. And Jesus isn't talking about just going on a little vacation in southern Israel. That's not what he's saying. Because every time he does this with his disciples, he says, I must go to Jerusalem. And when I'm there, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I will be raised. And again, this is the third time that he's telling them this. But here in chapter 20, it's different than the other two. This is a turning point in the story. Because the first two times that Jesus says this to his disciples, he's talking about a future event But this time he says that he's talking about a current event. If you picked up on verse 17, he says, and they were on the way. As they're on the way to Jerusalem, he says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, right? And and there's something happening here that Jesus wants his disciples to see, he wants us to see. The beginning of verse 18 says, see. That's a word most often translated behold in the gospel of Matthew. We mentioned it a ton. Now, when you see this show up, it's when it says, hey, look at this. Pay attention to this. Jesus is telling his disciples, do not miss what's happening here. You know that trip that I've been telling you about where we're gonna go down to Jerusalem? Well, well, that's about to happen. That's where we're headed. And this is the moment the entire gospel of Matthew has been building to. Starts in chapter one, verse one, if you're familiar with that. It says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And we talked a lot about this sentence back at the beginning of the sermon series, but it's been a while. This is a verse, when we read this, we kind of treat it like the, the intro to a Netflix show. You know, what do you do? Skip intro, right? Get me to the good stuff. I've seen this before. This isn't important to me. But Matthew's original audience, who were entirely Jewish, they would have been hanging on every one of these words because for them, the, that this is who Jesus is. The fact that he's the son of David means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one day I'm gonna bring someone from you, I'm gonna establish his throne, he's gonna be a king and his his kingdom will last forever. These words that Jesus is the son of Abraham is evidence to the Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment to the promise that God makes to 
Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when he says, one day one's gonna come from you, from your offspring, and I'm gonna bless the entire nations of the earth through him. Again, Matthew is saying this is who Jesus is. He is the promised savior king. And, and that's what this word Christ means. You know that, that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ. They didn't have a reunion of the Christ every couple of years. There wasn't a Christ painting on their front door. Welcome to the Christ home. You know, no, this is a title. Jesus Christ, it's a, he, he is the one who was promised who would come and rescue and redeem the people of God. And Matthew starts his gospel, chapter one, verse one, with an announcement. This is who Jesus is. And then for 20 chapters, he builds and establishes his case. And here in verse 18, Matthew says that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he says, behold, I need you to see this. I need you to pay attention. Don't miss this because this is what I came to do. Look at verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. So for the third time, Jesus prepares his disciples for the cross. He says, the son of man will be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. That is the religious leaders in Jerusalem and they are gonna condemn him. So Jesus says, I will be delivered over. This word delivered, another way to translate uh, this word is the word betray, that Jesus will be betrayed. So what's he talking about here? Who betrays Jesus? Judas does, right? He's talking about Judas selling him out. Remember Matthew chapter 26, Jesus hours from the cross, he's literally sweating drops of blood as he prays to God the Father before he goes to be a, a sacrifice for our sins and his disciples are supposed to be praying as well and he goes and he finds them and they're asleep and he says this to them, verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Verse 46, rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Talking about Judas, these both word betrayers, the same word translated delivered in chapter 20. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem and I need you to understand what's gonna happen when we get there. He says, I will be betrayed and condemned to death. First by religious leaders, then in verse 19, he says, I'll be betrayed again. And this time I'm gonna be handed over to the Gentiles who will do three things. They're gonna mock me, they're gonna flog me, which is a word we don't use a lot. It means to be beaten or tortured with a stick or a whip. Mock me, flog me, and ultimately crucify me. Listen to what happens. Chapter 27, verse one. When morning came, that's the morning after Judas betrays him and he arrested, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So he's condemned to death and he's delivered, betrayed again to Pilate. Who's Pilate? It's a Roman officer. He's a Gentile. 27, uh, chapter 27, verse 29, 31. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mock him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe that they put on him and they put on his old clothes and they led him away to crucify him. Again, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, we're going to Jerusalem and I need you to understand what's gonna happen when we get there. I will be betrayed by one of you. I will be condemned to death and then I will be handed over to the Romans to be mocked and beaten and crucified. And in less than a week, it happens. There's two things that I want you to see in these few verses. Jesus's life is not taken from him. He lays it down. That's the first one. Jesus's life is not taken from him. He lays it down. Listen to this. John 10 says, 
Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So he wants his disciples to understand something before going to Jerusalem, because even though he said it to them twice already, they are viewing this trip to Jerusalem as a coronation. They understand, or they don't understand all the, the, the suffering stuff, the cross stuff, but what they know is that he's going to Jerusalem and he is gonna be exalted to his rightful place as king of the universe. He is the Messiah, that's what they believe, right? His rightful place of honor and glory. They sincerely believe that Jesus is the savior king and they, get, they, they know it's gonna be a coronation, but they, they got it wrong. And it's easy to give the, the disciples a hard time and just sort of kind of chuckle, Ha <laughs> silly disciples, they never understand anything that's going on, right? It's easy to do that, but what Jesus says here in Matthew 20 honestly wouldn't even make sense to them. Because who does he say in verse 18 that this is gonna happen to? He says, the son of man. The son of man will be delivered. And what we have to understand is that in the Jewish mind, they wouldn't even have a category for anything like what Jesus is describing to happen to the son of man. And here's why. The son of man, this is a reference to Daniel 7. Daniel has this vision of God in his throne room calls God the ancient of days, which means that he's the one who has always been, who will always be. He knows everything. He, he is the omnipotent God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God. He's in his, in his throne room. And then Daniel says, he sees this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there come one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, right? Came to God and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and all nations and all languages should, what? serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus says, that's who I am. Not just here in Matthew 20, I counted 16 times before this occurrence that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man in this gospel. He's saying, I'm the one who has been given all authority from God. I'm the one who has the kingdom from God that all peoples and all nations and all languages will serve me. So the question that the disciples would have in their mind should be the same one that we're thinking right now is if that's who you are, if you are the one with all power and authority, if Jesus, you are that great, then how is it possible for someone to take anything from you, let alone take your life? And again, the answer is his life isn't taken from him. He lays it down. Jesus's point to his disciples is that kingdom greatness is different. Kingdom greatness is different than the greatness that we see in the world. We're gonna see that today. That's the first thing I want you to see here. Here's the second. The second is if that's how verse 19 ended. If verse 19 ended, the son of man will be crucified, then we would all be wasting our time. If the son of man just died, then we would all be wasting our time. And the reason why is because a great man dying is it's worth gathering for once or it's worth gathering for a handful of times, but it's definitely not worth leaving everything behind to follow after him. But that's not how verse 19 ends. They're gonna deliver him, Gentiles to be mocked, the flogged and crucified, what does it say? And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus wasn't just a great man. He was the son of man and his life wasn't taken from him. It was laid down, right? Listen to this, Matthew 28 says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. You know, that's not just for Easter Sunday. It's for every Sunday. It's for every day that we wake up, that the sun comes up. Jesus was crucified and he was raised and it is our hope that he wasn't just a great man, but that he was the son of man. Jesus is preparing his disciples for, the, for this trip to Jerusalem because it's gonna be a coronation. It is him receiving his kingdom, only it's gonna come in a way that they would never expect through a crown of thorns and a Roman cross. The son of man, the one with all authority will be victorious, he is, but his victory comes through the door of humility. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that there is an invitation to follow him. He wants them to come with him to Jerusalem, but he wants them to know, if you follow me, you need to know where I'm going. And you need to know what it's gonna cost, what it's gonna, what's gonna happen to me when I get there and what's gonna happen to you, right? That, that, that invitation for the disciples is, is available to us as well. Jesus has invited us to follow him, but we need to know what following him actually means. We need to know what's gonna cost. I heard a pastor say this week that we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow Jesus because he's better than life. So if you're following him, why are you following him? Because he makes your life better? Because life's pretty good, but you got some sprinkling some Jesus stuff. We don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow him because he's better than life. And so for the final time before going into Jerusalem, he pulls his disciples aside to not only remind them who he is, but to make sure they understand what he came to do and what it will mean for them if they follow him. Essentially, what he's asking them in this moment is, what do you want me to do for you? He's saying to his disciples, what do you want me to do for you? Like, why are you here? Right, literally, this is a come to Jesus meeting, right? They come to Jesus, that was a joke, no one laughed, except for Aaron, she smiled, almost got a laugh. Essentially, this come to Jesus meeting, and he says, why are you here? You know where we're going. What do you want me to do for you? Why are you following me? What do you want me to do for you? And let me ask you this. What if Jesus asked you that question? What if Jesus asked you, why are you here? Why are you following me? What do you want me to do for you? This past week, there was a lot of talk about how big the, the Powerball price had gotten. Anyone buy a ticket? Bunch of liars, somebody did, all right? <laughs> as of Wednesday, or I think as of Saturday, it was $1.6 billion last night, nobody won. I tried to check to see if anybody won and the website crashed, that's how many people had put their hope in this. But I looked on the news and apparently no one won. So it's $1.9 million tomorrow night that you can win. Put a couple bucks down, pick six numbers right, that's it. And you can win $1.9 billion. It, actually, the, the cash payout's only about $790 million. So don't get too excited, right? Um, what, it, what inevitably happens, though, when the pot of you know, lottery gets so big like this is, is you end up having the conversation, or at least I did, of like, hey, what would you do if you won the money? Like, what would you do if you won that much money? And essentially what the question is, is what would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do? If you could be anything you wanted, if you could have anything, if you could do anything you wanted, that's the question, if you have that much money, right? And I know this is hypothetical. I spent way too much time on this this week, but it is statistically more likely for you to die this year of getting struck by lightning than it is for you to ever win the Powerball in your lifetime, okay? So not good odds, but if you want to throw a couple bucks down, um, make sure you tithe if you win. Uh, no, I'm kidding. That was a joke. A bad one. 
it's hypothetically part of a conversation, but it's kind of fun to think about, right? Kind of fun to think about what would you do if you could do anything you wanted? And, and the reason why is because the way you answer that question, it reveals something about who you are. It reveals something about your desires and the things that you, that you ultimately want in life. And the reason why I mentioned that is because in the, in the rest of this passage that we're gonna read, Jesus actually asks two different groups of people that same question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And the way they answer reveals something about their ultimate desires. And I think it would do us some good to take a look at this. Let's look at verse 20. It says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? Again, Jesus has just told his disciples he's gonna die on the third day he'd be raised. And then this woman comes up to him and the text tells us that this is the mother of the sons of Zebedee which is James and John, okay? So this is the same James and John in the inner circle of Jesus. A couple chapters ago, they're on the mountain of transfiguration. Them two and Peter are there with Elijah and Moses, okay? These guys are in the inner circle and their mom comes up to Jesus and kneels down and, and he says to her, what do you want? And the tone isn't, what do you want, right? It's not that. And the reason why I know is because other translations of this word might say, what do you wish the idea is Jesus says, what do you desire? What is the thing that you want that you don't have, but if you did, then your life would be what you want it to be? And she answers him, verse 21, he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She essentially says, I want my boys to be great. He says, what do you want? What's your desire? She says, I want my boys to be great. She asked if they can sit at his right and his left hand, which is this position of, of power and status and importance, right? And there's a whole road that we could go down about pushy parenting, all right? And I'm not gonna do it because it's not the part of the text. It's not the point, rather. Um, but I think what's easier when you read this is to give her a hard time. Like, mom, get out of here, right? Um, but there's a lot that she's doing right in this passage. She knows who Jesus really is. She knows that he is the long-awaited uh, messianic king. She comes to him, she kneels down before him. She believes his word. She believes that what he says, that one day he will sit on a throne in his kingdom. She knows that, but she says this, all I'm asking is that when your kingdom does come, like you say it will, will you give the important seats to my James and John? They're good boys, right? They deserve it. And this throne stuff, it kind of sounds out of left field, but it's actually what Jesus tells them a couple of chapters earlier, actually one chapter earlier. In chapter 19, Jesus says that your reward for following me, Peter goes, what do we get? if we follow you. And he says, your reward is that you're gonna rule, you, each of you will be on a throne, 12 thrones, and you would rule and judge over the 12 tribes of Israel. So this isn't coming out of left field. They had heard this. James and John had heard what Jesus said. They believed him and they were excited about it, right? They told their mom about it. Mom, can you believe it, right? He said that we're the ones who are gonna rule and reign with them over all of Israel and they're blown away. But what happens is at some point, the excitement of ruling and reigning with Jesus begins to fade because what they really want is to be important. They don't just wanna rule and reign with Jesus. They wanna be next to him as he does it. They want the good seats. And we know that this is not just what their mom wants for them. This is actually what they want because when Jesus answers her, he answers them and not the mom. Look at verse 22, Jesus answered. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, 
But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. This cup that he's talking about all through the Old Testament, it's used as imagery to represent the wrath of God poured out on sinful humanity. So Jesus, the cup he's talking about when he says, are you able to drink my cup? He's talking about the cup of his suffering and death. Why would he say that? This mom comes to him and says, you make my boys great in the kingdom. And he says, well, can they suffer? Why would he say that? He's bringing this up for the same reason that he had this conversation with his disciples earlier because he wants them to know that greatness in the kingdom looks different than greatness in the world. So when their mom, when they get their mom to go and ask him because they're afraid to essentially, when they get their mom to ask, hey, can we be great in the kingdom? Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? And they say, we can, which clearly you can. But his point is, are you ready for the suffering and the sacrifice? Because based on what you want me to do for you, you want, to make, you want me to make you so great, I don't think you're ready. I just told you I would be betrayed, mocked, beaten, and crucified. Betrayed by one of you, by the way. And the first thing you say is, hey, Jesus, when you get done with all that cross stuff, how great are you gonna make us? When you finish with all that suffering and death, how great are we going to be? And again, Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And the way they answer it reveals something about them. James and John are content with Jesus being on his throne. They just want little thrones next to his. Jesus, we know you're the most important, but can we be important next to you? And church, we do this too. We think we can worship Jesus and give him the big throne while simultaneously keeping our little throne next to his. And probably the most shocking thing in this whole passage is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke them. When you get done with all that Jesus stuff, how great are we gonna be? What would you say? He doesn't rebuke them. He just redefines what true greatness is. He says, your vision of greatness is too shallow. Your vision of what's great is too thin to give you the life that you want. It's, it's the thing in your mind where you go, God, if I just had this, then my life would be everything I hoped it would be. And what happens if you get that thing? You need more and more and more and more. And Jesus says, greatness is different. Kingdom greatness is different than worldly greatness. Your vision for what is truly great is too thin, it's too shallow. Look what happens, verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, that's the other 10 disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. So they hear this and they get mad, all right? They get indignant. This word indignant in English, it means angry or annoyed because of something that you think is not fair, okay? Um, This has no point to the sermon, but I'm gonna tell the story anyways. my, reminds me of my daughter, it's indignant, um, because she's two and a half years old and she started this thing recently where no matter what happens, if she doesn't like it, it's not fair, you know what I mean? And she stomps her foot and gets real mad about it. Like the other day she asked me if she could have a piece of gum. And I said, baby, you already have a piece of gum. And she said, it's not fair. You're like, it's already in your mouth, okay? <laughs> it is fair. You don't understand what fairness is, all right? That's what happens. She's indignant because she thinks it's not fair. But this, this Greek here is actually two words, indignant. It's two words pushed together. One that means a lot or much and one that means ache. And so he's saying it's a lot of pain. But that pain or ache part of that word is actually a, a figurative translation. The literal translation of that word is bent. So the idea is that it hurts because it's been bent for too long. And so what's happening here is Matthew said that when the other 10 disciples hear what James and John get, get their mom to go ask Jesus, they get angry. They get bent out of shape. And what we need to see here is that they're not mad because James and John are misunderstanding the kingdom. 
They're not, seriously, guys, he just told us what he would endure on the cross and you're thinking about yourselves. It's not that. They're mad because of their own what about me mentality. They are thinking, why should you get to be more important than us in the kingdom? You already got to go on the Mount of Transfiguration. What makes you think that you're so important that you get to be next to him as he rules and reigns forever? They're not saying, how dare you? They're saying, how dare you ask him that before we had a chance to? This is what's being revealed here. Their anger reveals that they are thinking the same as James and John. And so Jesus looks at all of his disciples and he corrects this what about me mentality and way of thinking. Look at verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus says, you know, the Gentiles, they use their positions of power and importance to lord it over the people around them. They use the areas in their life where they are important or where they have authority and they use that to get other people to serve them. And when he says Gentile here, he's not talking about non-Jewish. He's saying that's how people act who don't know God. People who don't know God, they use their positions of power and authority to get others to do things for them. And Jesus says this, it must not be so among you. He doesn't say, would you please stop doing that? It'd be a good idea if you quit acting like the Gentiles here. No, he's saying this is one of the distinctions that should be present within the church and followers of Jesus. He says, people who don't know God use their power to get things from others, but people who do know God use all of their lives, especially the places where, they're, where they have power and importance rather to, to serve others rather than to get them to serve them. That's what he's saying here. He's saying kingdom greatness is different than greatness in the world. Kingdom greatness is not who has the corner office. And this is how we think about what it means to be great, isn't it? Like last night was a great game. It was a great game. Amen? Go dogs. Um, Inevitably, it has to happen. Uh, It was a great game. Why? Because we were better. That's worldly greatness. If you wanna go from good to great, you're saying, I want to get better. I need to be better than the people around me. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's worldly greatness. Kingdom greatness is not about your seat. It's about your service. Jesus says the place of highest honor in the kingdom is not just a servant. He he says it's a slave, two different words. Servant here is the word uh, diakonos, where we get our English word deacon, those who serve. Slave here is the word doulos. It means bond servant. It means we belong to someone else. And socially speaking, what Jesus is saying is these are the people with the lowest of the low. They had no platform, no position of importance, no power, no area in their life where they could say, well, what about me? What about me? What about what I think? What about what I want? Their whole life was, existed to serve others. And Jesus says, that's the greatest among you, those who are slaves. And just a side note, slavery in Jesus's day is not the same as slavery in our country, right? The race-based horrific history of slavery in our country. It's not the same. It's impossible to say that word without us thinking of that. I'm not saying that slavery in Jesus' day was good. It wasn't. Uh, I'm just saying that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's something different. He's talking about they have no position of authority. And Jesus says, those are the greatest. And what's important here to understand is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He says, the greatness that you're chasing after is worldly greatness, but it must not be so among you. He says, I want you to chase after kingdom greatness. 
He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He says, I wanna redefine greatness. I want you to chase after kingdom greatness. True greatness is when you use whatever power and importance you have as an opportunity to give, not to get from others. So Jesus asks his disciples, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we wanna be great. Again, he doesn't rebuke them. He just says, are you sure? Because I think my definition of greatness might be a little bit different than yours. Here's a question for you. Do you wanna be great? Do you wanna be great? And if so, do you wanna be great the way the world defines it? Better than others, more important than others, have the best seat in the house? Or do you wanna be great the way that Jesus defines it? If the answer is yes, I wanna be great the way that Jesus defines it, then here's what he says to you this morning, really simple. If you wanna be great, he says this, serve. It's simple. Use whatever position of power and importance you've been given by God to serve the people around you. If you wanna be great, serve. And I'm gonna take just a few moments to talk to the men in the room here. You wanna be great, fellas? Now I know you might've come long enough in your life where you're, you've messed up so much or you're disenfranchised where you know greatness is not even in the cards for me. I'm just gonna settle for average at this point. But when you were a kid, no one said, man, I hope one day I'm mediocre. But we wanna be great. We wanna be great. You wanna be great in life, here's what Jesus says, serve. Don't spend your life working to get to the place where you're surrounded by people who just exist to do what you want them to do. If you're married, you wanna be a great husband. You wanna be a great dad, Jesus says this, serve more than you are demanded to serve. Here's a, here's a question you probably don't want me to ask you. What would your wife say if you asked her? Do I serve more than I expect to be served? What would your kids say? Does daddy serve more than he expects you guys to serve him and mama to serve him? We don't wanna answer that question. And I know it's easy to dismiss me right now because you're like, man, you don't know me, you don't know my life. I spend all day grinding at the office for people who don't care for me, who don't appreciate me. And then I come home and I, all the things that I do for these, for my wife and my kids, they don't appreciate me. Like, it's so easy to dismiss me. And, and I get it, because I feel that way sometimes too if I'm not careful. But here's the thing. Jesus says, when you live like that, when you live in your mind going balancing the scales, going, I've done all this for you and you want me to do more. When you try to balance the scales in your mind, living like that, Jesus says, is living like you don't even know who God is. That's how the Gentiles live. He says, and it must not be so among you. You wanna be a great husband, a great dad? Serve more than you demand to be served. You wanna be a great employee or employer or a great friend or neighbor or, or whatever, serve. Quit filtering everything you do through those scales in your mind that, has, that tries to get things fair, get things even. Jesus says, that's how the Gentiles live and must not be so among you. And then he says this, verse 28. Even as the son of man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, if we stopped at verse 27, if Matthew 20 ended at verse 27, if that were the message of Christianity, there would be no gospel. Christianity would be, if you serve others, then you will inherit eternal life. And if that were true, then Christianity would be no different than any other religion. Serve God and hope that one day it's enough. The message of Jesus is, I came to serve you so that you will have the capacity to serve others. This is what he says. One of the key words in this verse is the word even. Jesus says, even the son of man came. Who's the son of man? The one with all authority, the one with all power, 
the one who Colossians says upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he, all things were created by him, through him, for him. The son of man came, he says, to serve you. Even the son of man came. This is a verse that I think every Christian should memorize. Matthew 20, 28 or Mark 10, 45, almost the exact same wording. You need to memorize this verse because greatness doesn't come from you. Worldly greatness might, but kingdom greatness cannot come from you. It's impossible. Kingdom, kingdom greatness can only come from the power of God. And inevitably what happens when you get the opportunities to serve in your life, especially in the places where you're important or you're more powerful, is, is eventually what's gonna bubble up inside of you is what about me? That's what happens. The natural disposition of the human heart is to think, what about me? And in those moments, if all you have is, okay, I'm gonna serve people, it's not gonna cut it. You will run out. You need a deeper source. You need to bring to mind this verse. You commit it to memory that says this, even the son of man came. He left heaven, Philippians 2 says. He took on flesh. He emptied himself. So in the moments in your life where you feel full of yourself, you remember that Jesus emptied himself. Not only did he come to serve, he came to serve you. He gave his life as a ransom for you. Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died death in our place. He died in our place to bring us back in the right relationship with God. And most Christians hear that and they go, yeah, yeah, I get it. Jesus died for me, praise God. Jesus didn't just serve you once at the cross. The Bible teaches that God is attentive. attentive. Hebrews 4 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. When you feel indignant, when you feel that what about me bubble up, the Bible just says Jesus understands. He sympathizes with us in our weakness, but but we have one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so, since that's who he is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only is he attentive to us, he doesn't need anything from us. Jesus isn't saying, come to me, I'll help you, but but like in a needy way. Come to me, come to me. He's not saying it in a needy way. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is attentive, but he doesn't need anything from us. And the God that we truly need is a God who does not need anything from us, but rather invites us to him because he loves us. I want you to hear this quote from Charles Spurgeon about this verse, Matthew 20, 28. He says, he had nothing whatever to gain by it. Gain? What could the infinite God gain? Splendor? Look at the stars far away, they glitter beyond all mortal count. Servants? Does he need servants? Behold, angels in their squadrons, 20,000, even thousands of angels are the chariots of the Almighty. Honor? No. The trumpet of fame forever proclaims him King of kings and Lord of lords. Who can add to the splendor of the diadem that makes sun and moon grow pale by comparison? Who can add to the riches or the wealth of him who has all things at his disposal? No, he comes then not to be served, but to serve. This is our God the one who clothes himself in humility, who empties himself so that we can serve others. He lays his life down for you as a ransom. Let's close with this, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, 
Have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. So again, we see Jesus ask the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And when I first read this, I thought, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Right? You got these blind guys, they've been on the side of the road for who knows how long, years screaming out, begging, they can't see anything, they can't work, they're desperate. Like, Jesus, why would you say, you know, um, what do you want me to do for you? It seems like, it's like have you ever been to a Mexican restaurant and you eat like three baskets of chips and salsa and your mouth's on fire and you're out of water and they come by and they're like, hey, do you want more to drink? And you're like, I don't even have my food yet. Yes, please. I want, you know, that's the kind of question. No, I was just gonna wait for my eyes to melt and I was gonna drink that. It'd be great. That's kind of what this question seemed like when I, when I first read it. But then I remembered, Jesus already knows. He doesn't need to ask the question to know what we need. He already knows what we need. He asked the question because it reveals something about the desires of our hearts. So he asked these two men, what do you want me to do for you? And here we see a completely different answer than we did with the disciples. They said, Lord, make us great. And these guys say to Jesus, Lord, let us see your greatness. Have mercy on us, son of David. We wanna see your greatness. Instead of more, they ask for mercy. Instead of more of what they think they deserve because they're living their life in this what about me mentality and this posture, instead of more of what they think they deserve, they ask for mercy for what they know they don't. Lord, we wanna see. The posture of the Christian church should not be what about me, but rather who am I? Who am I that the God of the universe would lay his life down for me? And it's from that place that we find the, the power to serve the people around us. So the question that we need to answer this morning is, what do you want from Jesus? Kingdom greatness is different than the greatness of the world. What do you want from him? More of what you think you deserve or mercy for what you know you don't? Let me pray for us and we'll respond by singing. Lord Jesus, we are both the blind men and the arrogant disciples. And yet, it isn't up to us to earn, up, to earn our way into your love and approval. You, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. And so I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convince us of the good news of the gospel, that we are loved by you right now, not some future version of us, not when we figure it out, regardless of how people might answer that question of, am I great? God, you love us. I pray you convince us of that truth, that you would help us to be the church. In the positions of power and importance that you've given us, would you help us to respond like the blind man? Not asking for more of what we think we deserve, but mercy for what we know we don't. We're thankful for Jesus. Help us to respond, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.